0: Welcome to the Biota Podcast, I'm Tom Barbele. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Bruce Dahmer. Bruce, an inordinate length of time since we last talked on one of these podcasts.
1: It completely is, Tom. It's uh, been way too long. I mean, it
0: might have been two, three years at this point. Yeah, but, but well, I'm not even sure because, I mean, you and I talk and then sometimes we talk on podcasts and then sometimes you come to Netflix for lunch. I mean, we have a wide variety of ways that we actually communicate. And I remember certainly last year we spent a bit of time together, but none of that was actually broadcast in a podcast. So I know you have a lot of bits of news and, you know, lots of different uh, things to, to tell the audience. But before I begin with that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Wikipedia situation, because you may not be aware of this, but there was a biota section on the Artificial Life Organization's page on Wikipedia. And in May, a number of pages were deleted, including this one and a few pages associated with stuff that I had done as well. So Wikipedia seems to be going through a series of changes associated with how they present information. And in doing this, I mean, the wiki pages on Biota and Ape and all these things, they were written by listeners to this podcast, a gentleman by the name of Jay Lemon, who I interviewed maybe 2006, and a couple of other people who had appeared on the early Biota podcast took it upon themselves to create a series of wiki pages, and they have, I think, almost all been deleted now, you know, 12 years after they were first written. I had some interaction with the process, but I'm I'm wondering, as you listen to this, what are your thoughts on how a community can create, you know, wiki pages that survive the test of time?
1: You know, I'm a terrible person to ask this question because I don't even have a I have no Wikipedia page of my own and, you know, pretty much I'm, i like, there's, I have no presence on Wikipedia except for the mention of the Digibarn. And maybe that's been deleted. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you're in the, you're in the John Draper Captain Crunch article. I'm pretty sure that's still in place. And the interview that I took and then donated to the Digibarn, I think is still there. So small <laughs> little bits and pieces. But what are your thoughts? Uh, It's difficult because,
1: I mean, who's doing the judging of whether a community is real or active or historical? I mean, it seems very unacademic and unscholarly to delete articles that have been around for a long time. I don't understand that as a form of censorship or something.
0: Hmm. Well, as you know, I've been going through my own experiences and I, I don't know, part of me wonders whether it was associated with that, because certainly the fellow who did a majority of the deletions who I actually interacted with after the fact really didn't look at any references. I mean, the whole nature of it was just deleting stuff quickly. He had a kind of group of, of flunkies that, you know, exclaimed delete, delete, delete through the thing. But there was one person who came back and provided a bunch of references and she said, actually, there were enough references there for the deletions not to be taken place, which was curious because... You know, that was my feeling as well, that everything was surprisingly well referenced. <laughs> you know, it was held together. And it certainly wasn't isolated. So she then took all these pages into her own, whatever, user space on Wikipedia. But I, I have no indication, that I mean, she hasn't done anything with them. It just appears that they're all hidden. So we're in a kind of strange position currently. And I think the nature of the deletions was so rapid... And without any means of review, but my understanding is that this occasionally happens on Wikipedia, and it's just part of the way it exists. So it is all very curious. Mm-hmm. I've had communication with Tim Taylor uh, in the past day or two. He did a special event at the recent A Life conference in Newcastle in the UK, and he had a few, you know, folks that turned up that have historical involvement with Wikipedia. But I think the timeframes for ISIL, the International Society of Artificial Life, is much longer than the speed at which this deletion has taken place. And I don't think they're in a space where they're actually talking about resolving the deletions that have occurred. So it is a rather curious situation. I will, however, if you're you're willing to be humoured, Bruce, provide (laughs) my solution to this problem. Yes, please. in, In a slightly roundabout way. My solution to global warming is to grow tea in the Bay Area. And I now grow delicious tea, which I give on to my coworkers as the Bay area becomes hotter, drier. And basically the next, the next thing to grow is pineapples. I think (laughs) that's what has happened, uh, to the weather here. I feel the same way with regards to this Wikipedia situation. All I can continue to do is produce, you know, stuff with Noble Ape, release podcasts, do basically what I was doing 12 years ago when the articles were originally written. And hopefully some of this, which I think is very much with your philosophy as well, some of this will eventually stick enough that someone else will want to take on the task of writing these Wikipedia articles. But all we can do is do good work, right?
1: Oh, that's all we can do. You know, and in a sense, it's for others. It's for history to uh, record or recall what's going on.
0: Yes, yes. Now, let's talk a little bit. This podcast, in in terms of a historical legacy, is associated with a series of conferences that you kicked off in 1997, right? 1996,
1: 1997?
0: Yep, yep. But what you're talking about now associated with Biota and what you're going to do with biota.org is associated with a new entity that folks would have heard evolving through the EvoGrid discussion and certainly some of our later recordings. But for folks listening in, what what is going on currently with the Biother Institute, what is the vision and where is this thing going as you see it currently?
1: Well, we've uh, got all of our paperwork back from uh, both the federal and state authorities now because you now have to register with the uh, basically Attorney General Charitable Trusts Group. So that wasn't the case back when Contact Consortium, its predecessor was for 20 over 20 years ago. So I finally got that. It just takes months and months. So now we're registered with all three agencies. And what's happening around the world, it's it's actually pretty good timing with this because different research groups are taking up this origin hypothesis that uh, Dave and I came up with. And they're doing active fieldwork and science. And in fact, one of the students from Australia has been staying here at Ancient Oaks for the last month. Uh, going down to the lab and being trained and doing really good work in polymerization and getting ready to go and support the next trip to New Zealand. So it's, it that's from the University of New South Wales. Hmm. So there's that, there's a group in Japan, there's a conference in Japan, there's a conference in Quito, Ecuador next year. Um, you know, at the recent Astrobiology Science Conference in Seattle, there was 750 people and we had a, Origin of Life Mega Session with twenty speakers and two dozen posters and just an all-day thing that I chaired or co-chaired. Um, so it's just taken off. I mean, there's just so much beautiful work. Uh, the, the field really has swung toward back toward our approach in Darwin's warm little pond. And there's groups doing wet dry cycling, groups groups doing computational simulations now, and even a company has spun off called Epsilonics. Uh, Mason Hargrave from our group, a uh, young undergraduate, spun a company off to develop the mass of what we called the Genesis engine way back. Remember when I came out to Netflix? Certainly. So it's all, there isn't a lot of funding flowing yet, but there's a huge amount of excitement and interest. And in, I think 2020 is going to be the year where uh, we're going to aggregate, we can now actually aggregate all these six or seven universities under this umbrella, but we have to find, is it that we go for, and we're always back to the same question you've always posed, do we go for high net worth uh, investors, you know, philanthropists, do we, you know, it's it's priming, but it hasn't found its, uh, its sponsor, its champion yet.
0: And you mentioned computer simulations, obviously folks listening in who are I don't know what one would call them, like Biota faithful, like, you know, listeners to the Biota podcast that, you know, have, you know, Langton books in their bookshelves, this kind of stuff, Dawkins, Langton et al. What kind of computer simulations are going to be run in this field? And will there be a reach back into historically what Biota was to pull some of these ideas into what the Biota Institute is now?
1: Absolutely, yes. Uh, In fact, I'm very excited because we are reaching back now. And, and here's how it goes. So, you know, doing a lot of artificial light simulations seem to suggest that emergent phenomena were possible de novo, uh, in the simulations. And we saw that in Tierra. We see that in Noble 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the comments that Tom Ray always made about Tierra was, um, that I can't see more than just sort of, uh, what he calls sort of a virus action or competition <laughs> for monomers. He's not seeing an open-ended system of emergence in Tierra. And he explained it at at, at Biota 1 mm. in the D- digital birdies in Banff. He's explained because actually it was up on the way up Mount Rundle that Tom turned to me and he said, the reason Tierra cannot do open-ended simulation is because there's no encapsulation of Sets of polymers that have interaction. Hmm. They're just they're just bare naked molecules. There's I E. There's no organelles. There, there's there's not the things that you find in cells uh, functional units. And so in in a real way, the journey all the way from that conversation to meeting Dave Deemer, switching to chemistry approaches to emergence, which is the origin of life question itself and then actually getting in the hot spring in Rotorua last year, getting protocells to form and polymers of great length, I mean hundreds of base pairs long RNA to form in the hot spring setting and get encapsulated in trillions of these membranous protocells, you No, know, doing it in the hot spring environment, um, we're now to the point where, hey, we found a way that nature can self-assemble sets of Polymers, so they're, they're not like Tierra organisms, but they're linear polymers with, that can have, can derive function. Because if you get a 60 mer or 100 mer, uh, piece of RNA, you can actually at random, uh, evolve or basically from the background, a, uh, a ribozyme. And a ribozyme is a folded piece of RNA that can do jobs. So, it's a weird thing because it's an informational polymer, but it can fold and do, do things. And uh, so it's like a protein. and it's, it's like the combination of what proteins do and what DNA does. So we're now at this step that Tom Ray put out, which is if, if we can create a computer simulation now of random generation of things like RNA and things like peptides in sets, Uh, i.e. simulating protocells, and run them through selection processes, and then in the computer simulation find actual stuff that emerges, like a pore forming, you know, a membrane-attached polymer, or one of Stuart Kaufman's autocatalytic sets emerges in the simulation and makes the surrounding protocell more stable and more replicable, then we're really on the track to open-ended emergent stuff that isn't necessarily in a virtual world of artificial, an artificial virtual world, it's actually tied to chemistry. So then we go back to the hot spring or the laboratory and we we do the same thing. We try to see this, the, the same emergent, uh, an autocatalytic set or a pore emerge from actual monomers, uh, from actual, uh, you know, actual prebiotic, prebiotically plausible monomers. So we see it working in the chemistry, which is much, much harder than working in simulation.
0: It's interesting, actually. I talked to Tom Ray, I think, in 2010. I'm not sure if you heard that conversation. He was interested at the time in neuromorphology with the view that I think... I actually link his work in my thinking to Ken Stanley's work and also um, a few other folk who we've interviewed that were interested in this area. But he was then talking about things which I think link very neatly into what you're describing with these... Uh, polymers. And I think what's interesting is he his ideas changed over time. And he certainly was less interested in traditional artificial life. In fact, really, he hadn't looked at the field for a number of years when I talked to him in 2010. But it sounds like he was at a point of his own you know, simulation where he could be brought into this kind of conversation very easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Tom... You know, the last time I had contact with him was working on neuroscience
0: that's exactly what I'm saying. He was interested in in neuromorphology and how you actually simulated that, which uh, at the time seemed to me to fold perfectly back into intelligent agent simulation um but you know he had his own particular vision but yes, I think it's interesting looking at him in you know multiple phases of his of his life and his work. Because I think he would be very sympathetic to a lot of the stuff that you're talking about now. Um, Or at least, who knows where he is nine years after I last spoke to him. But certainly, yep. you know, nine years ago, he was talking about these kind of ideas, but associated with mapping this into neurons, basically.
1: Well, in uh, a week and a half, I'm going up to the consciousness hacking meeting in San Francisco and presenting the link between uh, the origin of life and how consciousness actually works. Mm. And I've been doing this now for, so that's possibly uh, reaching back to Tom Ray where he is now, mm. but um, taking the very great stretch of saying that if we feel we've found the processes, the simple cycling system with its properties that leads to the biological world, that that simple cycling system actually underlies everything, including human culture and consciousness. Mm. And even technology. That there's there's three fundamental principles we've derived uh, from from the system we see in the lab that may be the general applicable system that is capable of emerging uh, any any behavior, and and that's that's the basis of Epsilonics. They've just done their first white paper and presenting. They're going to be presenting it. Actually, I'm going to be presenting it to uh, Google's office of the CTO probably in a couple of days. Um, because Google is quite interested in all this because of its impact on AI and machine learning.
0: I think the difficulty with Google is it's historically embraced this kind of technology in order to not put it into anything, well, very occasionally putting it back into things which are publicly and scientifically scrutable. But the difficulty with Google or any interaction with Google is associated with the ownership of ideas and the quieting of communication around these ideas. I mean, we've seen it in our community associated with a few folks who are, you know, full-time Googlers and are working on things which mean that they can't actively, you know, work on their or discuss their prior work even. So mm. it's interesting, the obviously being funded to continue this work, but then being quietened by the relationship with Google. I mean, what, what's your thought associated with that?
1: Well, we've had two meetings with them, and um, a particular individual there is in charge of AI Projects. Um, ai for forward edge research mm-hmm. and he's associated with nasa's frontier development lab and that's how I got to meet him because I presented at f d l back in at SEti institute in in january and he's extremely excited about what we're doing and talking to us about you know, he actually is in a sense becoming a bit of a guide as as uh epsilonics and Mason get it started uh and we're um you know we're sort of taking his advice. Um, He he talks about these kinds of issues and he talks about possible avenues for Google to provide financing and possible avenues for us to just get our own independent support through consulting. Hmm. Uh, So just consulting on tensor calculus, uh, there's like a big demand for applied mathematics. Hmm. So there's, you tend to find even in venture funded entities that, they haven't done their analytical, I mean, and since their, their mathematical treatments very well. So they're, they're, in, end up hacking code. Mm-hmm. And often these ventures are trying to make breakthroughs in machine learning. Um, because they don't have a mathematical basis, they get lost. So Mason's concept is that Epsilonics comes in as an applied math consultancy, looks at the code bases, looks at the, the original mathematical treatment, because you have to go back to that, mm. and basically helps those entities uh, reformat what they're doing, you know, and works out probabilities of whether what they're trying to do is even plausible and whether it's NP and complete or incomplete. And, and that's pretty exciting. And there's, according to the Google fellow and everyone we've talked to, there's a lack of, of good mathematics people and Mason's three weeks from going to Rockefeller University, where he has a fully funded graduate PhD program, and we will be end up working with Rockefeller as well. And Rockefeller in the, is in New York, and it has the really the largest group of mathematics, uh, biology-oriented people, hmm. and uh, famous famous names actually there. And uh, so we're we're actually going to have an agreement with Rockefeller. And so it's, it's a really different approach. It's, it's saying if you can abstract these learning goals or these emergence goals into math and then come back into the code, into Python or, you know, Julia code or whatever, you can make better solutions. And so we have a chief mathematical officer who's just been, he's just come on board this tiny, tiny nascent venture. Hmm. And, and I think it, 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 it kind of, does owe a lot of lineage to biota because we're we're returning back to computational simulation at the boundary between you know soft a life you, you remember these terms <laughs> uh, hard a life which is robotics but uh, wet a life which is chemistry you know because when you're dealing with medicine or biology it's gotta interface with chemistry at some point so. It's really cool. We're back in the the intersection
0: again. It's interesting that you mentioned the lack of mathematicians, like you know, deep applied mathematicians in AI research. Our friend Oshiyadka, who basically hosted a series of SRI talks, was very active in the early movement in the Bay Area. Has had a career. I was he's just started a new job, and I was looking at his LinkedIn and just thinking, here is a mathematician. Who has done exactly what you were describing for his entire career, moved between these various startups and various ventures and made the mathematics right for them. This hmm. notion of the, you know, the artificial life practitioner as the applied mathematician that comes in is a very interesting vision. And I think one that certainly there are a number of folks in our community that have done this at various times in their careers. But the notion of making a company in, in uh, from that, And then consulting based on that is a really fascinating idea. So thank you for sharing that, Bruce.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. And, uh, yeah, it actually was Google that told us form a company. Mm. So, um, and we said, why? And they said, because then you have a container for all this, what you're doing, your intellectual property. And, uh, we have, we have someone we can talk to. So Mason went off and formed a company as a 21 year old undergraduate. So in
0: terms of, I mean, Dr. Bruce, as an entity, you talk with Deepak Chopra, you talk with a wide variety of folk about the origin of, of life and your own particular perspectives. One of the things that I loved about being your PhD advisor was that I had hundreds of hours. Unfortunately, that was many hard disks ago. I don't have the hundreds of hours of audio anymore. But in terms of your broader travels, in terms of, of you know, the Dr. Bruce persona, What are you picking up that you can bring back to the Biota Institute? I mean, let's talk about Deepak Chopra in particular. Here is a man who clearly has a number of different ideas and interests that likes to maintain deep connections with people such as yourself. Can you talk a little bit about some of that feedback in this process too? Deepak
1: told me a year ago that he was going to sell his companies and, and really shut down everything because he felt it was just overwhelming. And... He wasn't able to concentrate on basically his own inner work. Mm. And also he was fascinated with this concept of emergence just on its own. Mm. And he actually wanted to provide financing through one of his supporters, I think, for a group that would work on just emergence. And he would be a fly on the wall. That's how he described himself. Mm. Uh, just observing that. And I, I said to him, that would be wonderful and I'd be happy to to support that. I'd be happy part of that. And we, we met briefly at the Institute of Noetic Sciences conference two weeks ago, uh, and just had a wonderful connection. And he said, I'll, I'm going I'll be in touch with you because um, he, he he doesn't hang around these conferences anymore. He just comes <laughs> in, does the thing, and he leaves out the back door so no one can find him. Um, so I'm sure that uh, we'll be in touch and, uh, and I'll ask him, are you ready? You know, he he' had, he's standing down all these companies in this whole thing. I mean, that's a pretty big, a big step. Certainly. And he said, I'm seven, you know, I'm 71. I've got to really get going on. And I, I said to him, you really want to make a contribution to human knowledge. Uh, and he, he's, he's always had this sort of passion for science, but always, you know, kind of sticks his foot in it all the time. He, mm the debate or the rather not even debates, the just bad behavior that Deepak's exhibited in public um, that he's had to apologize uh, for. Just get, He gets triggered because I think he wanted or perhaps his, his family had expecting to be in science or more traditional medicine or something. And he went this way, but you know, I, whether that's here or now or here or there, when we met a year ago in Tucson at the Tucson conference, I brought this dermatolite that I've been bringing around to the meetings and he grabbed it out of my hand. We were on Facebook live with twenty five thousand <laughs> people and he grabbed it out of my hand and he described what it was in perfect. Absolutely perfect. Like it was a crypto endolith with, you know, it was a chemophile living mm-hmm. at you know, about three billion years ago. And he read it. He'd really done his homework. Um, You know, he may espouse panpsychism where. Um, the universe itself is conscious and whatnot Mm. there's another part of him that realizes that perhaps that's just a story and that the real the, the only way we can get grounded in reality is to do things like dig up old rocks and say what actually was going on then what makes up consciousness well it's a planet that ends up harboring complex life and where does that come from well it comes from a process that Generate simple microbial systems first and it stacks. And so this is a part of Deepak that deeply craves that hmm. information. And so truthfully, Tom, and I think that this is so primed. I mean, there's so much interest. I'm, I'm doing a program at California Institute of Integral Studies with Matt Seagal and Brian Swim in October. I was just in Cambridge uh presenting the origin of life as it relates to its evolution at the extended evolutionary synthesis group uh in at the university in Cambridge there. Mm. And that was really wonderful. That was at the sort of heart of inter- international and British thinking on the you know the extended synthesis it's called. of uh, top top people presenting at, at the end of a 5 year Templeton grant. Uh it was one of the largest Templeton uh Research projects they've ever funded, uh, and so this this particular you know insight or discovery or formalism or whatever is just spreading to you know philosophers and spiritual people have been interested in it and you know I spoke at the science and non duality conference a couple you know for a couple of years and it's just going and going and going and uh, everyone seems to take something from from it and take it into their own community.
0: The study of emergence is something I'm currently creating a Noble 8 iPhone app, which is specifically intended for people that use calming apps. There's a very particular kind of philosophical meditative group of folk that put substantial money into apps. I'm not releasing it for a charge, though. But I thought the the original users of Noble Ape, a portion of them, used it for calming, relaxation and reflection. Mm -hmm. And I'm developing the iOS app specifically around that where you're following narrative, you're seeing the apes interact, you're seeing it's almost like a soap opera generator, but in software, but really showing emergent complexity in an introduction which is very non-confrontational. So I'm even slowing down the simulation intentionally to make it more human accessible. And I think What I did historically was release Noble 8 for, you know, I just put it up on software sites and people would play with it. But I'm now realising that, as you say, there is a critical need for anything that can show emergent complexity, fascinating emergent complexity. And certainly as a panacea to what is happening on Wikipedia and all this other stuff that is going on, really a majority (laughs) of what we see in the mass media we are both in not necessarily the business, but we're both in trying to get these ideas of emergent complexity out to people through different particular, you know, aspects. And the notion that Deepak Chopra is getting rid of everything and looking at emergence as an idea, I actually think exists on so many different levels. I've tried this. I've had conversations with Anton associated with Instagram. You just put things out there on Instagram and immediately you have. You know, six, seven people who are all interested in talking about this thing just through visual effect. So I think it's a fascinating time because so much of, you know, what we have presented goes so far against this quiet, reflected learning, you know, building these kind of notions or the antithesis of a majority of what is shown in the popular media. We provide an an antidote to this world, right? Is this the way you see it, Bruce?
1: Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of dissociation and people being lost in stories now. They're mm. just flooded with stories, <laughs> you know, from conspiracy theories, oh my goodness, political nonsense, and everything. And I pay no attention to it. I I just don't even plug into it because I, I don't pay attention to the news because it's just it just there's no benefit to it. Yes, and and so when I arrive at at meetings or. Do a talk. I'm kind of like Gulliver and Gulliver's travel. You know, I'm I'm raving about Ren and Stimpy, you know, or something like that. (laughs) That's the new great thing from 1989. Uh, because I'm like Gulliver and, uh, but it's sort of fresh because I'm, I'm not worn up into the local zeitgeist, which is annoying most of the time. And it's, it's manufactured. Or it's made by chaotic process and it, it's absolutely not helpful yes. for where we're at. So I just completely ignore it and just lay out a, a, a program, you know, whether it's a consciousness or now we're starting a climate mitigation initiative um, yeah. with a bunch of people that are sort of coming together around what's called mitigation, which is preparing infrastructure for coming under assault. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we, bunch of us got together, including a, a U.S. Navy admiral that I met in the Middle East in Qatar in January, and uh, we realized that the, Qatar was going to be underwater. Certainly. Uh, even with FIFA World Cup stadiums and the whole thing, and they realize it now, too. Um, and mitigation is about having a decade in the 2020s to actually do design and engineering and then... 2030 you've got to be starting construction everywhere mm. uh, in the central valley for the hurricanes that are going to come through from the Gulf of Mexico and plow through Los Angeles and go all the way up yes uh, that's that's guaranteed to be happening so you have to change all the agricultural base in California and that's a big job and and then Facebook and Google are at sea level in the Bay Area and the Bay Area needs a seawall it's just going to need a seawall and no one is working on it. Hmm. And it's been a study or two and Admiral Norman Hayes, uh, when we were discussing this in January said we need a national convention and a national a round table and, and involving all the interested parties, the grassroots groups, the Pentagon army Corps of engineers who are going to actually do a lot of this, um, and companies and local property owners and transportation groups and agriculture and cities, uh um, all are trying to formulate response, uh, but we can create a network of experts. And I came up with a name for it a month ago, climate mitigation associates. Mm-hmm. And this, we're going to actually have our first meeting on Saturday, um, with five, five local people and possibly get ready to go and see Admiral Hayes and, and a couple of other people of in, in the military who are very, very passionate about this. And just ignoring, you can just ignore all of the, uh, political stuff <laughs> completely because we will have the, the lead into big finance and big finance will finance all these projects. Yes. Mitigation. And that's what turns the world. And we just, the political people have no, they have no seat at the table. They're not part of, part of this. And it, it's all going to come down to vested self interest, which is what moves, moves stuff big and fast. So that's that's the that's actually the most important thing I think that I'm in I'm a small part of this thing, but I mean, mm. you know, I came up with the domain name mitigation dot net, and you know, it's just it's sort of a seed that's going up, but there's people who are way more connected to this than I am that are going to take this forward.
0: Well, unfortunately, I'm out of tea. Otherwise, I'd send you a tea parcel for your Saturday meeting. I mean, what I find fascinating about looking at the changes in botany based on what has occurred means, you know, what, you, you know, the areas that used to grow wine in Northern California, that whole thing, that whole viniculture thing is basically lost now. So looking at tea and actually the tea that I grow, certainly amongst my coworkers and what have you is pretty sought after now. <laughs> it is of amazing quality and amazing flavor. Actually, it is fascinating how. Removing yourself from the narrative enables you to think of other, you know, solutions. I mean, how do you actually strategically plan this thing? Where do you move to? Because the the narrative is so hollow, the political narrative associated with this. And in particular, you know, the small lamenting outcry, as you say, what needs to be found here are solutions that are clearly going to be. And it's interesting, actually, you say 20 years. I had, uh, I stayed with Roy Plotnick, former biota participant. I don't know, maybe seven years ago now, I'm embarrassed to say. And he was teaching environmental science to, I think, undergrads. And I said to him, hmm. why aren't you more honest associated with this thing? This whole narrative associated with like, if we do this, 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 this and this, then maybe things won't get worse. I mean, I think clearly. The circumstances have changed irreparably even a decade ago. And what we see now in California, particularly Northern California, where it doesn't rain at all for most of the year, it's becoming a desert. You know, you talk to locals about what it was like. I used to live here 20 years ago. I remember what it was like 20 years ago. So Mm -hmm. this whole narrative is, is disconnected from what people, you know, what the media is, you know, stirring people up about, this is what thinking you know on the fringes perhaps of science but certainly thinking scientific folk have to do so I really do applaud this work Bruce because I think it's it's necessary if anything I would shrink your time frames I would start be planning you know the engineering now not maybe in a decade's time but start considering it now because certainly with regards to sea levels and these kind of things. We need strategies in place now. And in the San Francisco Bay area in particular, the appetite for doing this kind of mitigation is not in the current politicians. So the narrative needs to be completely changed right now.
1: Yeah. Google, Google had told the county of San Mateo that they were willing to finance the studies. So, I mean, there's, there's an interesting thing, which is the corporate interests and there's now an international movement of, of airports mm. because 72% of the world's airports are under direct threat. Yeah. And um, Haneda, which is the big new uh, international uh, on pylons in Tokyo Bay, mm-hmm. they built it three feet too, too short. Mm. Uh, so they're going to have, and it's not that the runways will be overrun because they're, it's still pretty high up, but what happens is You get a foot of sea level rise or 18 inches, uh, and then salt water incursions during high tides and storm events are much more likely. And it's the salt water that kills your refineries, your airport, uh, your subway. Certainly this we saw in New York with Hurricane Sandy. It's the salt water incursion. This has been happening to Chevron's facilities in Houston. Mm. And so Chevron went to the Houston Ship Canal and army army corps of engineers and said this is a real problem guys it, we're seeing salt water here and it's rusting all of our our stuff and and that also affects rail uh, and so so that's these large you know you might call them conservative but they're large corporations are starting to sound the alarm and ask for where investment can happen and then there's all these engineering firms who want to be involved and they see a trillion dollars dollar signs, which is about right for the U.S., um, to do this work. And then the Pentagon coming in with these very, very senior admirals and planners saying, this is our new mission, is defending this country. And even uh, politicos, I mean, people who are more pragmatic, bent looking at the planning for this thing, realize we have to merge the economic systems of Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, all of them has to be single merged thing with the United States because we're need 40 to 50 million skilled labor uh, workers to do all this, especially the concrete work. So the economies are going to have to become unified, no walls. I mean, you're going to need as many <laughs> hands as you
0: can get. Well, you and, need skilled laborers to buy, build different kinds of walls. There are walls, but just not the walls that, you know, immediately spring to mind, right?
1: Yeah. And as as this movement and this realization gets in force, it'll sweep away all this other nonsense. And and it has to sweep it away within a decade because, you know, what Admiral Hayes said was, if we're not building by 2030, we're really screwed. And his his metaphor was really plain. He said, look, in battle, if you have a surprise attack on your position, it's a very different strategy than if you have 24 hours notice and
0: we have 24 hours notice and we need to use it. Well, with that, Bruce, I'd say it's been wonderful to have the chance to chat with you today. We need to do this more frequently. This podcast exists as a, I guess a meeting really of your historical legacy and your new direction. So please utilize the Biota podcast going forward as a means to, to talk about these things, maybe occasionally delving into topics of simulation, but certainly you are, you are a friend and you are always welcome on this particular podcast, Bruce. So I look forward to talking to you in the future. My pleasure, Tom. Me too.